For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're starting in the book of John. Uh, we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 14. Uh, John is a really theologically, especially the introduction, the first 18 verses of the book of John, are a very theologically deep uh, way to begin a gospel, to begin this biography. Uh, to give a little bit of background, John is one of four gospels. Uh, we refer to the first four uh, books of the New Testament as gospels. And that word has a lot of meaning to a lot of different people. For some people, it's a, it's a music uh, genre. For others, it's uh, the specific message of uh, salvation through Jesus Christ. The root of the word gospel uh, comes from the Greek, which was the word euangelion. And it's kind of interesting to know how it all got started. In the ancient world, they didn't have uh, newspapers. They didn't have, you know, getting news out about important events that impacted people's lives was a lot more difficult than it was today. And you would have things where you might have a village or a town or a large city, and maybe 10 miles away, two different nations, two different armies from two different kings would be battling on the battlefield, and the outcome of that battle would determine what's, what nation you were a citizen of. You might wake up as an Israelite and go to bed as a Babylonian, depending on what happened with that battle. And so the news of the outcome of the battle became something that was very important, and there were what were called heralds, you know, which were just people with big mouths who could be really loud right? And what you would do is you wouldn't want to go too close to the battlefield, but you'd kind of sit and wait and find out what happened. And they would come in, and no matter who won, right, the herald would say, good news, everybody, because you wouldn't want to say, we've been defeated, and now the Babylonians, it's terrible news, because the Babylonians might not appreciate that. So no matter who won, you'd say, good news, we're Babylonians now, <laughs> or good news, we're still Israelites. And that was the euangelion. It was the outcome of a battle to, to, to proclaim a victory, right? And so the gospel writers, the new, early New Testament Christians, looked at Jesus and looked at his story and looked at his life, and it was, it was a victory of the ultimate battle, the battle over death and sin itself. And the outcome of that battle is euangelion. It's the good news. And so when we say gospel, it has all these different connotations, but at the root... You know, it's a word that existed before Jesus Christ, and the way that the, the authors who were using this language saw it was, this is the good news, the declaration of victory of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the Gospels, we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are usually lumped in together in a specific way, and theologians, people like to you know, refer to them as the synoptic Gospels. People say, well, what does that mean? It's just a fancy way of saying they're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. They have similar chronologies. They have similar wording. They have similar stories. They differ, and they differ in very important ways. But most people believe that they were kind of working from a similar uh, source text to lay out their version of the biography of Jesus Christ's life. And then John stands alone as it's not one of the synoptics. And the stories in John are different. 
he emphasizes different things. And there's a lot more content in John that is not in the other three Gospels. Part of this is because it was written last. He was probably very familiar with the other biographies on Jesus Christ that have been written. And as an intimate disciple of Jesus, he said, you know, I know a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things Jesus did and said that weren't there. I want to give my version. And so we see John standing out and being different in that way. It's not contradictory. He's not changing the story of the other three Gospels. He's just including a lot of stuff that's not there. Stories that the others decided not to include. And we see this, and if we turn to John 21, 25, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Right? What's he telling us? He's saying, a lot happened in the 33-some years of Jesus Christ. And all of it's amazing, and all of it's cool. All of it teaches us important things. And so what you're reading, whether you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is you're reading a selective, not comprehensive biography. And it's important that we understand that. Because it, in, it brings in some interesting questions, like why did they select some stories and not others? And when you see different accounts of things in different Gospels, one of the things that you should realize is, is they might have selected and decided to emphasize the taking the same event and talked about it from two different perspectives because both are true, but they have different points that they want to communicate. Gospel chronology gets very complicated. If you try to lay out you know, what are the exact order of events in Jesus' life? And you take all four Gospels and you try to do that. It gets very complicated because in the ancient world, history was not tied to chronology the same way it is today. And you say, that sounds very odd. How could history not be tied to chronology? Well, there's a loose chronology in all the Gospels. Jesus isn't resurrected before he's born, for example, Right? He's born, he lives, he's crucified, he's raised from the dead. That's the loose chronology that all of them would follow. But what they would tend to do is they would take the teachings of Christ and different stories that, that taught about who he was, and they would arrange them thematically more so than chronologically. And so you have different events happening seemingly at different times, but that's because the way they did history in 33 A.D., was very different from our Western sense of historiography, the way that we do it. And so we have these Gospels that have these stories, and they don't contradict each other, but they're selective, and they place different things at different times. John, specifically, is written to both a Greek and Jewish audience. You can tell that because John is a Jewish man, and he has a lot of Jewish perspective. And he talks a lot about uh, the, the Jewish customs and uh, the Old Testament. But he also, as we'll see in the prologue that we're going to read this morning, he gets very deep into Greek philosophy and is using language that is very much designed to capture a Greek audience. The other thing that would, it's helpful to know about John is he had a very distinct and declared purpose in writing it. He tells us in the letter himself, what his, what his goal is. He says in John 20, 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the point. He wants you to know, I lived with Jesus Christ. I traveled with Jesus Christ. I followed him. I saw these things with my own eyes. I camped out with him. I prayed with him. I ate meals with him. I saw it all. And I believe that he is God. That's really something, isn't it? That's really something that he he would be able to be so close. It's not like he saw him in a crowd one day and said, that guy could be God. He shared a room with him, right? He was intimate with him, and he said, this is God. And so we have the idea here that that is what a gospel is. It's an eyewitness account. It's people who were very much connected with Jesus Christ. The book of Mark is Peter's account. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples, the tax collector. Luke was not with Jesus Christ, but he explains in his text at the very beginning that he gathered together. He was living and writing, you know, around 60 AD, and there are people, many people who were still alive when these things happened, so he took it upon himself to go and and interview eyewitnesses and put together a historical account based on eyewitness testimony. And then John, who was not only in the inner circle of the twelve, but who was the inner circle of the inner circle of the twelve, saw these things, recorded these things. This is history. This is the best kind of history where you have people who were there, multiple people who were there, who recorded what happened and whose stories fit together. And they come to the same conclusion. Jesus is the Christ. Gospels are also biographical, though. We can't have it lost on us that what we're doing here is we're reading a biography of the creator of the universe, which is a pretty crazy thing if you think about it. We get to see who God is, and we get to learn about God in an amazing way. Not just God, you know, the eternal God floating in space, disconnected from what's happening, but a God who comes down and puts himself in our shoes, literally, and has the experiences that we have. The author of Hebrews makes this point in a powerful way, how understanding who Jesus is is the ultimate way of understanding who God is. He says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. See what he's saying? He's saying we have the Old Testament. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. We have all kinds of literature spoken from God, given to men to explain to us who God is. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. What a great way to start Hebrews, right? It's to say, when you look at Jesus, you're not looking at a prophet. You're not looking at a messenger. You're looking at the source. You're looking at who God is. You're seeing God in action. How he behaves 
on a bad day when he got little sleep, right? Before his morning cup of whatever they drank in the ancient world, right? You're seeing God literally in our skin. You're seeing how he treats people. You're seeing his priorities. What matters to him? What are the priorities of Jesus Christ? What is most important to him? Because that is what's most important to God. You're seeing him in this human condition, and you're learning what your creator thinks about you. How does God think about us? The best source, according to Scripture, that you can go to to understand these kinds of questions, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Now, that raises a question that's, that often comes up. Does the Bible even claim Jesus is God? You know, if you watch the History Channel or you take a Bible is Lit class, you know, sometimes they throw stuff out there like, no, Jesus didn't even claim to be God. That's something that his later followers made up. It's, you know, this whole thing. Jesus would be horrified to know that uh, for centuries people have been saying that he, he is God. He would never would have wanted you to know that or think that, Really? Well, that's actually one of the things that major themes, one of the big things that John really, it's central. Because why? Because if he's not God, then we're not seeing God. Everything I just said is he's just a dude who's maybe, you know, connected to God in some way. Can you look at Jesus Christ and is that God himself in action? Or is he just another dude? A nice dude, maybe. Maybe not. Is Jesus God? So John dedicates the first few chapters to this, and he's also got a major problem, okay? Put yourself in John's shoes for a minute, if you will. You're writing a biography of the creator God of the universe. Where does it start? You ever think about that? Like, that would be a problem. Like, usually, you know, if you want to start, where do you start, you know? Well, this is an infinite being, We can't even comprehend eternity, but apparently if you go back, 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 you get to a point where there's just God, right? And he hasn't created anything yet, but he's been there for all eternity. He has no beginning. He is what was there before there was anything. And so what's the beginning of God's story? Where does it start? The synoptics take the easy way out. They start with Jesus' physical birth, right? That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. They know that Jesus existed before he was physically born because he's God. But they're like, you know, the manger and the, all that scene and the magi. Like, let's start there. That's good stuff, right? But that's the beginning of the incarnation, which is just a fancy word to say the enfleshment, the time where God actually took on flesh begins there. But that's not the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. So John takes a completely different tack. And he starts in John 1, verse 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you're just like, that was a pretty weird place to start, John. <laughs> There's a lot of things to that, that that seem strange. The Word, is saying, was in the beginning. It was there before there was anything, right? This is bringing into context the reality of the the infinity of the nature of God. When there was nothing, there was the Word. The Word has always been there. 
You go back, 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 and there's the word. And you get a sense that John is connecting the gospel of Jesus Christ to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because it starts the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of the earth. But what's already there before the earth? God. Before the universe was created, there was God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That God has a companion. God is, has someone that's with him. So the Word was there in the beginning. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. Right? It's just like... God is eternal. He has no beginning. He was always there, and he always had company with himself. Brave choice, John. Bold move. Is that how we understand that? I mean, I hope you can begin to see the challenge of what John is trying to do. He's trying to explain an eternal being that is not like us. To us, who, you know, it's very hard to comprehend. We have a beginning. God promises we don't have an end, but we have a very hard time contemplating eternity because we haven't experienced eternity. If we were born blind, how would you explain blue? That'd be very difficult. If you don't experience blue, you could put an ice cube in someone's hand and say, that's blue, right? But is that blue? I mean... How do you grasp it if you have no category for it? But what is clear from this is God is infinite. He is always there. And if God has always been there, then he was there before anything was created, and it was just him. And he was just him for eternity. And so that means that God is self-existent. He doesn't need anything because he existed for all eternity before there was anything. So God doesn't need anything other than himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation. He didn't create because he was hungry and he was like, I got to make a tree and some fruit, you know. He didn't create because he was lonely and said, you know, I got to get some people around me. He didn't need any of those things. He chose to do those things, but he didn't need them. We see that God is personal because God is not this all-encompassing force with no thoughts, no ideas. God has a will. God has a mind. God speaks God has a relationship. And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is able to meet his relational needs within himself, but he is a relational being. And this is why we start to talk about things like the Trinity. We haven't introduced the Holy Spirit yet, but we have God, and we have the Word, and they're together, yet they are each other. And do you understand why we we say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the triune God? It's one God. But he can have communion with himself. Very interesting. Verse 1 of John 1. And we're just scratching the surface. Why does he choose the word word? Why doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus? Why doesn't say in the beginning was God and God was with God. Why the word? That's an interesting question too. You look into the Greek on that and you get the word that's being translated there. It's logos, which is a very, very meaty word. You know, the Greeks loved their philosophy. 
And, you know, the word logos was at the central of a lot of philosophical debate for hundreds and hundreds of years among the Greeks. You had many different meanings behind this, but, you know, the, the consensus was that this, this is the meaning behind all things. The logos is the root of understanding and the meaning. You're like, ugh, what does that even mean? Well, I think it helps to understand how these words evolve over time. We don't use the word logos in the English, but we do use the word logo, which comes from logos. And so I could put a symbol up there, and that image communicates a lot, doesn't it? Right? And whether you're a Mac or you're a PC, you understand what that means. And that has a much more meaning than an apple. It says something And so we use the word logo, whether it's the Nike swoosh or the Apple Apple, because it's talking about the meaning behind the thing. And that has its root in the word logos. We get the word logic from logos. Our understanding, our ability to reason, our ability to, to understand the connection between things and how they fit together has to do with logos. The suffix, logi, which you all are very familiar with but don't necessarily know, is an understanding of things. So we have bio, which is life, logi, which is the understanding of, and we get biology. It's understanding life. We have anthropologi, the Greek word for man, anthropon, understanding of humanity, anthropology. Theos is the word for God, Logi, understanding about God, theology. So we don't know the word logos necessarily very well, but it's around us all the time. The meaning of it is is this powerful thing. Mailman, in his commentary, writes, Logos had a long history in Greek philosophy going back at least to Heraclitus, around 500 B.C., for whom the logos was the shaping, ordering, and directing principle in the universe. This is the way that the Greeks thought about what is the logos. They had a lot of debates in ancient philosophy about what is the arche, which meant like the base substance. Like if, if you go, what is the first thing that existed? And the thing that all things must be made of. Because if there was only one thing, then everything must have come from that one thing. And you may have heard of like earth, wind, and fire, right? Those are the basic elements that a lot of early philosophers would debate. What is the arche? Was there wind and that's what everything is made of? Is there water and that's what everything is made of? These guys come along later in around 500 BC and they're like, it's none of those things. It's the logos. The root that everything comes from is the meaning and the purpose and the ideas and the order. And so you begin to see how clever John is speaking to a Greek audience by saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you see where he's starting? He's starting with eternity past, and he's using a language that would be very familiar and connect immediately with the Greeks' understanding of the Logos. 
And say, he's saying the logos is the arche. It is the source of all things. It is the thing that existed. It's the first thing that is responsible for all other things that have been made. The Logos is with God. The Logos is God. The Logos created all things. And this is fascinating to think about. How does God create in Genesis chapter 1? He speaks. He says, let there be light. And there's light. And the Logos, we're told, is the created, the, the, the path through which creation occurred. The Word creates. The Word lives the Word is life. The Word is God. And the, law, the Word is the source of all life. John, man, you're deep. You're a deep man. This is powerful stuff, you know, especially for the Greek audience who would have been connecting with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God. And then we skip ahead just a short little piece, and we get the f- confirming identity of who the Word is. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that's where the other Gospels start, right there. The Word becomes flesh, takes on a human body, and lives among us. And he says, I was there. I saw his glory. The glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me tell you about the Logos. Wow. So, if we get back to, does the Bible even claim Jesus is God? <laughs> I mean, this isn't the only place, but this is definitely uh, a very powerful statement. The Logos is God. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. John is certain that Jesus Christ is God. And so the implications are something that we've discussed. We connect with that. That means the gospel is a snapshot of our creator living like we live. God in flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus Christ. Study the Gospels. Read the biography of your Creator and discover the greatness of who He is. But He is not who we think He is. He's so much more. He's a God that wants to be intimately involved in our lives and is willing to go to great lengths. He's always wanted this. We go all the way back to Exodus 29, 45, and 46. What does God say to the people of Israel? I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so he says, make a special tent. That's going to be my tent. You're all going to be camping in the wilderness. Everybody's got their own tent. There's my tent because I'm there with you because I'm a God who likes to be close to his creation. I will be with you. I will dwell among you, he says. We learn that we're so important to God that he's willing to go through the indignity of the human condition. This might be hard for us to grasp because we look around the world and we see, you know, the way that all the other creatures live and they don't seem very dignified to us. We must be, we're the most dignified, right? Uh, We have... uh, 
some filthy habits, but uh, we're not monkeys. They have some filthy habits, right? We're above them. But imagine God looking at us and what the separation there must be. The perfect God who needs nothing, right? The idea that He would take on flesh. Jesus was born. God allowed Himself to be born. Very undignified. Can you imagine? And it's not as though, you know, He was helpless. Like all babies are helpless. Jesus did not come out and say, good morning, Mary, how are you? You know? (laughs) Didn't happen, right? He was helpless. It'd be really terrifying if it did. I don't know why I just channeled like Beetlejuice there either. Hi there, how are you? Those aren't in the notes, I can just tell you that. (laughs) He had to have his diaper changed. He needed his mom. God needed his mom. He was vulnerable. He got tired. He got hungry. He would be lonely. These would all be new experiences for a God that needed nothing, who chose to limit himself by putting himself in a body and expose himself to the human condition. He would be subject to injustice, evil, and selfishness. By coming near and drawing near to us, he became vulnerable to us. And what would we do? with the opportunity to have God in close proximity. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in Mere Christianity. He wrote, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I mean, just what a beautiful, succinct way of, of laying out the reality of what's happened here. And it should not be lost on us, the incredible weight of what it is that God did when he came because God was not seeking some need to be met that he had. He was looking at us in the situation that we were in, where we were in rebellion, causing all the pain and suffering and wickedness in the world. We were destroying ourselves and we were shaking our fist at him. And he said, no, this is not why I made you. This is not who you were meant to be. As a just God and a righteous God, he must destroy evil. And we became evil. But God didn't just give up on us, didn't just wipe us out and start over. He decided to fix it. So he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. What would we do with a great, gift like this how would we respond well john goes on verses four and five in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness but the darkness did not comprehend it we're the darkness he's the light what does darkness do when light comes in it retreats Dark and light cannot exist together. And as the light of the world came into the world, we had a visceral reaction to what this meant and who this was. Then in 6 through 8, he has this little sidebar about John the Baptist. We're going to save that for next week. 
because we want to talk about discipleship in John the Baptist. And then he continues on in verse 9, and he says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. God does this incredible act to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. He takes on flesh and limits himself in this way, takes in all the indignity of the human condition, and shows up to teach us what love is, how we're supposed to be, what it's supposed to mean. And we're like, I don't like you. You're not who we thought you would be. He gave us the greatest gift that there ever was, and we missed it. It's the greatest gift possible. The greatest extension of grace and beauty and connection. I want to be with you and I want to make things right, but it wasn't the gift we wanted. We've been given the greatest gift in the world, but it's not a gift that we wanted because we each want to be our own God. What happens when you want to be your own God and God moves into your neighborhood? You're like, oh, I can't get too close to him because what he represents is something that I hate. I want to be God. I want to decide right and wrong for myself. I will choose my own path and my own destiny and I will earn it. And God says, you're great, but you're not that great. You were created for a purpose. And that purpose is love. That purpose is communion with me and with one another. But you are not God. And I say, well, we're going to have to do something about this. We can't be close to God and want to be our own God. It's a constant reminder of the truth of what we're not. And so, at first we tried well, here's God, maybe we can convince him to do it our way. So there were efforts made to try to get Jesus under control. You know, get him to believe what we want him to believe so that he would be what we want him to be. And we found that we couldn't do that. So then we decided, well, there's only one thing left to do. We've got to kill him. So they trumped up some charges exposed him, and gave him the most brutal death that we could imagine. And we're a pretty creative bunch. We missed it. We missed the point. John goes on in one twelve and says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light came into the world. The darkness recoiled. Jesus came to his own, and his own rejected him. But there were some, and as many as who did, as many as who embraced the light, as many as who would say, I am not God. You are God, and I need you. Come into my life. As many as would do that were saved. This is why we call it the good news, because it's not too late. The victory has been won. 
over death, over sin. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve because of our evil upon himself so that we could be saved. And the declaration goes out, a great victory, a great battle has been won, the battle of life and death, and life has won. And there's a knock at the door to come and say to you, you can have a relationship with God. You can be restored with God. And Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Will you open the door? Because what God will not do is kick down the door. Do you want to join his kingdom? A new citizenship a heavenly citizenship as a child of God, as a son and daughter of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is open the door. Admit, you're not God. He is God. And we need Him. It's a gift that can still be received. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That's a very interesting way, a very easy way to describe, I think, much of the human condition is we feel as though we're in darkness. We don't have the answers that we need. We don't know why there's a hole in the middle of our heart. We don't know why there's so much injustice. We don't know why there's so much pain. We don't know why life is so hard. But God knows, and God is the answer. God has the answer to that question. He is the light. Notice what this does not say. This does not say you have to go to church, give your money, judge others, and become a good person. That's what we think the Bible says. That's what the enemies of God, that's the portrait that they want to paint of who God is, is this is what you do, and maybe God will pass over you when his judgment comes. But none of that's here. None of it. That's not what's here. What's here is we have to receive him. Chapter 1, verse 20, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. As many Regardless of your background, your race, the culture that you were raised in, the clothes that you wear, the music that you listen to, the food that you eat, and the evil that you've done, if you'll receive him, you will become a child of God. Or, to frame it another way, as many as believe in him, believe that you are not God. And that he is. That's not the God you expect. When you're confronted with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, and the biography of who God is, the first thing you learn is he's not the God. We tend to make God and we say, okay, God's like just like us, but he's bigger. So God's just an overgrown us, right? And so when he comes, he's going to smash and make everybody obey because that's what we would do if we had the power. But instead, he comes, he's small, he's gentle, he's meek, he's mild, he's sacrificial, and he dies for us. 
so that we can have a choice of whether we want to know him or not know him. It's not what you expect. My hope is, is that you'll join us. Well, I'll be here for about 10 weeks going through and exploring together with you the question of what is God like in the Gospel of John. And you may find he's exactly who you want and need in your life, even though you've been told otherwise. And even though it feels like God just moved into the neighborhood and uh, I'm not going over to see him. You know, you may be here this morning because you thought, you know, what am I doing? I can't walk into a church, right? That's what we all think. All of us here at one point thought, if I go into a church, I'm a hypocrite, right? But yet God drew us here. He drew you here. And if you feel like you're a sinner and it's too late and there's no hope for you, you're in perfect company. Because we all once believed that as well. And we all still are sinners. We just know that there's hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been walking, I guess the thing that we really need to focus on is don't let your familiarity with the text. Oh, John, yeah, it's the book we tell everybody to read when they first start out. And yeah, John, John, John. Don't let your familiarity with the text rob you of the depths of the meaning of what we're looking at here, of who God is and what he's done. There you have John 1. Let's pray. God, it's such a privilege to be in your word together, to share our thoughts, to share with you, to come together and marvel and wonder at the word of God, the logos, and who you are, and how you've revealed yourself by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you, God, for rescuing us, for giving us purpose. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. And we just pray for the people in our lives who don't know you, those who are in this room and those who we love and we know and who are struggling to find meaning to find purpose, to find direction. We just ask God that they'll hear you knocking loudly on the door of their hearts and that you'll help us to gently and caringly encourage them to take that hard step of faith of admitting we are not God and inviting you in. Be with us as we try to be witnesses and ambassadors for you out into a world of pain, a world of chaos, a world of calamity. They need you more than ever, God, and we are your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.